0: Please take your, your, uh, your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever your choice. Find the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus and hold it. Um, this is a really short sermon, but it's got a really long introduction. <laughs> In a minute, you're going to wonder, is he ever going to get there? I I will but i got to set it up first. You and I have been richly blessed with the Word of God. 66 books written by at least 40 men, depending on who uh, wrote Hebrews. It's written in three languages: Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written on three continents: Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written over a span of 2,000 years. It's a variety of genres. You got history and poetry and narrative and descriptive stories, prophecy. You've got one unified message, one unified point, and one unified purpose. And that purpose is not simply to offer believers a lot of religious rules and regulations. The Bible has a lot of commands, both negative and positive. There's a lot of thou shalt's. There's a lot of "thou shalt nots," but that's not primarily the purpose of Scripture. The Bible is primarily a portrait of our amazing God as He pursues His wayward children and plans within our hearts a hunger to draw back close to Him. Scripture is not primarily about. Proper protocols and religious rituals. Scripture is primarily about. The reestablishment of a relationship. Between a holy God. And a sinful person. The greatest gift we have been offered. Is the invitation to seek. After God. He has invited us to seek his face. And to pursue his heart. We are are issued this incredible invitation to take him by the hand and to walk in his ways. And not only does he issue this incredible invitation, but then he offers to empower us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, enabling us to actually do it. Because on our own, you and I would not pursue God. And we could not walk with God. If the Holy Spirit didn't give us unction, we wouldn't try. We wouldn't want to. It's God who is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And that's his invitation. So let me ask you a Question. And for your sake, this is a rhetorical question, so don't answer There's no, I'm not taking a survey. And for your sake, you need to be ruthlessly honest. I mean, you need to hold yourself to the wall on this question. This is not a question you can grade yourself on a curve. You You need to be as... You need to be as critical with yourself on this question as you possibly can humanly be. And here's the question. Do you truly long for a deeper relationship with God? Do you truly seek after a deeper relationship? relationship with God. Do you truly in the depth of your soul hunger for a relationship with God or do you settle for some type of religious, spiritual, or cultural alternative? If you had to stand before God right now and he could see your heart, would he think you're satisfied in the relationship? Or would he think you desire so much more of him? Do you really have an insatiable desire to know the living God? Or are you satisfied with simply going through the Baptist routine? Now you need to wrestle with that. Not for my sake or Your neighbor's sake, you need to wrestle with that for your sake. Because, see, the great joy of being a believer in Jesus Christ is knowing Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about some of the characters in Scripture. Enoch, Old Testament, we're just going to walk through the Old Testament. Enoch longed for God. In fact, Enoch. Walked so closely with God and so intimately with God and so personally with God and so submissively with God that there came a point where God got tired of waiting on him to die and just took him home. Enoch was and was no more. Wouldn't you like to have that? I mean, first, I would love to escape the death process. I mean, I'm ready for heaven. If there was a bus in the parking lot going home, I'm on the bus. You know, uh, Debbie, you know, we call the boys. You want to go with us? Come on, let's go. You know, uh, there's nothing in this world holding me here. I'm ready to go. But I'm not really looking forward to the death process. If I could escape that, that'd be wonderful. But you know what? Not even just beside that. Just think about the fact Enoch is walking one day and he is so intimately acquainted with God that God said, come on home, son. Man, that's what we need to long for. That's what God wants to offer us. Noah longed so deeply for God and pursued God so relentlessly that in the midst of the worst time in human history, morally speaking, Noah's faith was so resilient that he obeyed God completely throughout a 100-year construction project. I mean, folks, it's bad now. We live in a post-Christian nation. It's bad now. Their their sin is, is rampant, but it's nothing compared to what Noah's day was like. Noah was the only one. But yet he walked so closely with the Lord that he could stay obedient to God in that moral cesspool for 100 years as he built that boat. Abraham longed for God. Abraham so hungered for God that he was willing to leave home and all that he knew and all that was comfortable to him and all that was familiar to him. And he was willing to travel to a land he had never seen before. He didn't know what lay ahead of him. But God said, go. God said, I'll be there when you get there. And Noah said, anywhere you are, that's where I want to be. And David. David so Longed for God, the the man after God's own heart longed for the heart of God. We sang this song last night, Psalms forty two. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Now you gotta, you got to picture Israel. you got to picture that dry, arid environment of the Middle East. Water is so very scarce. That deer is longing to find that next water hole because his life is in jeopardy if he doesn't. I thirst for God, David said. I thirst for the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? I want God. If you'll tell me where to go, I'll go. It doesn't matter how long it takes or what it costs or what I have to give up to get there. I just want God. Psalm 63, it just knocks me out. David writes, "O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you." And listen, this is not a preacher hyperbole. David David if it wasn't true, God would not have let David write it in scripture. This is not exaggeration. David honestly earnestly searched for God. David says, "My soul it thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. I live in this parched and weary land where there is no water, and because water is so sourced and it's such a requirement for life, we think about it constantly. But even more, than I want to drink, I want my God." David says, "I have seen you in your sanctuary." I have gazed upon your power and your glory. And it was awesome. It laid me out. I didn't know how to take it all in, it overwhelmed me. And I want more. He going and says, your unfailing love is better than life itself. And what he's saying there is, is life is precious, and life is sweet, and life is beautiful, and I want to protect it. But if I have to choose between the love of God and living, I'm going to choose God. If it costs me my very life, so be it. God is better. I will praise you as long As I live, I will lift my hand. Now, you know, I'm I'm Baptist. That's hard for me. I just, you know, I do this right here, you know. But David is Jewish. That's no problem for him. Some of y'all are Jewish. Anyway, David says, I lift my hands to you in prayer as an expression of adoration and worship and thankfulness and gratitude. David says, God, you alone, you in your person, you in who you are as a being, you satisfy me more than Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, New Year's dinner, all the other banquets that we can put together better than their their choices. And and See, for us, that, that doesn't sound like a big deal because, you know, we run to Cracker Barrel or we run to Oh Charlie's we run to the Mexican restaurant. But David, in, in that day and time, food was so scarce. It was so hard to come by. It was so hard to acquire. Man, the starvation was literally at your doorstep. And so food was a big deal. And David says, you are so much better than the best meal I could ever have. I praise you with songs of joy. And he just keeps going. I don't mean to belabor this, but he just keeps going. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. And then he gets down here, and in verse 6 he says, I lie awake thinking of you. You occupy my mind. You just arrest my attention. You fill my imagination. Because I have seen you in your power. And I've seen you in your glory. Nothing else can get my attention. I can't help but think about you. I cannot stop thinking about you. I meditate on you through the night. Because you're my helper. I sing for joy. In the shadow of your wings. And I like verse 8. I cling to you. I was in the hallway last Sunday and watched one of the dads come down and his daughter was with him and she just, you know, our children do. She just latched onto his leg and so he's doing that peg leg walk, you know? And that's what I picture here. David is just clinging to God. Your strong right hand, it holds me securely. Do you, do you hear the intimacy? Do you hear the abiding relationship? David isn't talking religious protocol. He's not talking rituals and, and temple uh, uh, protocol and, and, and events of, of, of the sacrificial system. and you, know, he's, he, he's just talking about his intimate and personal relationship with God. You know, when you think about it, our God offers us so many. Different blessings. There's such a variety to the blessings he offers us. But you know the best thing that God offers us is God himself. I mean, God is what makes it good. You know the best thing about heaven will not be the streets of gold. It will not be the gate of pearl. By the way, it's one pearl. It will not be the mansion on the hillside or, you know. You know some of you guys like to fish. I like to watch people fish. I couldn't catch a fish if he stocked a bathtub with starving bass. So I've often said, when I get to heaven, I, you know, in that glorified body, I'll be able to fish. Hey, look, preacher caught one, finally. I used to go fishing with these two old codgers. We'd go up to Wither Lake, and we'd catfish. We'd, we'd, we'd put in, and we'd just troll down the, the, shore, the, 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 the line, and we'd have 11 lines in the water. 11 fishing rods, 11 lines in the water. We're just, we're just dragging the bottom. They're hooking catfish left and right. And I'm just sitting there. They would get so mad at me because I wouldn't catch any fish. They'd start throwing fish at me. I'll get to heaven. I'll be able to fish. But you know what? That won't matter. You know, the best thing about heaven is Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. The best thing God offers us is himself. Nothing even comes close but unfortunately i'm afraid and I, and I hope i'm not being judgmental but it just it just seems to me it just my, my experience in life as a minister and as a believer it, it just seems to me that so many believers have settled for religious procedures and spiritual protocols instead of instead of pursuing a heartfelt intimacy with god and I understand it to a point because religion is so much easier than a relationship. It really is. I mean, really, religion is easy. It doesn't cost us a whole lot. We show up on occasion. We throw a few dollars in the plate. You know, we kind of act respectable. We, we, we only commit the sins that, that you can get, along, get away with in our society. And, 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 you know, we go about our business. That, it doesn't cost us anything. There's really nothing hard about being a Christian in our culture. You know, you know, religion is easy when people treat the church like a country club. They have rights to instead of treating it like a movement they're called to die to. Pursuing God's a whole different story. It is the narrow road that few can find and even fewer will walk because it requires dying to ourselves. It requires crawling up on a sacrificial altar and dying to our rights and our entitlements and our desires and our preferences and our positions and what little power we can exert. We give all that away. And we submit and surrender to the Lordship of Christ and we do what He calls us to because we simply want to be with Him. See, flesh cannot stand in the presence of God. Our awesome God is a consuming fire and, and flesh and its selfishness will burn up if God gets even close. And so there are people who they, they don't want to give up their flesh. They don't want to give up the things of this world. They don't want to, but they want to be a respectable Christian. They just don't want to give up the things of this world. So they keep God in the arm's length. They don't work on the relationship, but they, don't want, they, they know all the procedures. And they, and they can do all the Baptist stuff or Methodist stuff or Presbyterian stuff or whatever stuff. But they're missing out on God. But once you crawl on that altar and once you die to your selfishness of your flesh and once you take up your cross and follow Jesus, your hearts are freed and you're now enabled to pursue God with a reckless abandonment. And the relationship takes on a whole new meaning. And you, like David, you will lie awake at night just meditating on the greatness of God and you can't wait to get up in the morning because you want to spend another day walking hand in hand with him. Dying to self frees us to pursue God with all our hearts. And see, it is the pursuit of God with all our heart that is the key to this. Because you cannot catch God. You will not pursue God until you're willing to pursue him with everything you got. It's not a halfway. It's not a partial. It's all or nothing. Here's a familiar verse. You know it well. Unfortunately, most of the time it's taken out of context, which drives me crazy, but that's another thing. But Jeremiah 29, God is speaking, and he's talking through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, and he, well, Judah, really, and he says, you will seek me, and he is prophetically speaking, in about 70 years, you will seek me, and you will find me. But see, there's a condition when you seek me with all your heart. Now, now let me give you the back, the back story. And maybe you know it, and you know. Just bear with me here. But Nebuchadnezzar had marched his Babylonian army over, and they laid siege to, to Jerusalem and Judah, and, and, and conquered it, and carried everybody uh, back as war refugees to Babylon, and 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 the the. The Jewish people who had been carried back to Babylon, they're just devastated. I mean, they've been destroyed. Their city's been devastated. Their country's been eradicated, and, and they've been carried back as slaves, basically, to Babylon, and, and they're, just, they're just destroyed emotionally and spiritually, and they're wondering, what is God doing? And so God sends, Jeremiah, sends word by Jeremiah, look, this is only going to last 70 years. 70 years from now, you're going to be freed, and you're going to return to Jerusalem, and when you return to Jerusalem, you can begin to pray to me, and when you pray to me, I will hear you, and I, and I will speak to you, and I will come and be with you, if you're willing to You seek me with everything you got. But you can't do this half hearted stuff. It just will not work. It's all or nothing. Most of the promises found in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah do not apply to the New Testament church. In in 2018. But the principle here does. We are invited to pursue God with all our heart. And we are promised that if we put our whole heart into it, we will find Him. And we are promised that when we find Him, we get the greatest thing there is. Which is a relationship with Him. So let me ask you, are you willing to pursue God with all your heart? Now, let me ask you some, some tough questions. And, and, um, and again, anytime I point one finger at you, I have three fingers pointed at me. So these questions are a lot harder for me than they are for you. And I'd really like to not ask them, but I feel nece- it's necessary. So let me just ask you this. When you pray to God do you want something or do you want someone? I mean, you really need to think about that. Prayer was not meant to be an opportunity to offer our spiritual wish list to our heavenly Santa Now, yes, we come to God with our needs and we come to God with our request. But the main purpose of prayer is to enable us to come into the presence of God and abide with him and commune with him. Prayer was never meant to be a one-way conversation. You need to pray with your Bible open and you need to listen more than you talk. And I know that's hard. If you like to talk as much as I do, you actually give God a hard time getting a word in. But when you pray, do you want something or do you want someone? When you read your Bible, do you read your Bible to know something or do you read your Bible to know someone? Is the Bible just a matter of trivia? Or is your Bible a revelation of the character, the personality, and the love, and the action of Almighty Transcendent God? When was the last time you entered this room for a worship experience, genuinely wanting to see God, to experience God, to hear from God? Am I wrong in, in thinking, and, and you know, don't shout out, but you can come talk to me later or send me an email or something. But am I wrong in thinking that most people's greatest hope on Sunday morning is the room will not be too cold, the music will not be too loud, and the sermon will not be too long? are, 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 are instead... Are we actually coming in here longing for God, seeking for God, expecting for God? And see, here's the thing. God is not hiding. In fact, Jesus went to the cross so that he could could create access so that you and I have opportunity to, to come into the Father's presence. God wants to be known. He's not playing hide and seek. But God is only going to manifest his presence to those who are seeking him for him and not his blessing. For those who are seeking him with all their heart. For those who are seeking just to abide with him and not because he's going to take care of some problem. God is looking for hungry people who know that the trappings of ritual religion is a false mirage. God is looking for hungry people who are broken and repentant and humble. People who are hungry enough to pursue God as the pearl of great price. And they're willing to sell everything they've got, liquidate everything they got, so that they can obtain that one pearl, that relationship with God. See, unfortunately, and again, I hope I'm not being too judgmental. I really, I really hope not. I don't like being judgmental. I think it's a sin. But unfortunately, when I look around today, I see the church today is so much like ancient Israel. See, God invites us into an intimate relationship, but we don't take him up on his offer. We play these little religious games. And in playing our little religious games, we miss out on encountering the risen Savior in an intimate and personal way. Now that's introduction. Long introduction, really short sermon. But I want to read you from Exodus 19 and 20. I'm going to read you quite a bit because I want you to see it. But let me give you the the background so that when we pick up in verse 16, you understand what's going on. The, the the nation of Israel, following Moses, is three months out of ex, out of Egypt. You know, God sent Moses. They had the ten plagues. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn son. Pharaoh said, "You may go." Uh, Moses and the people they took off running. They first went south. They went through the Red Sea, and now they've come over, and they're they're three months out of Egypt, and they've arrived. At the base of Mount Sinai, and and God is speaking to Moses. Moses has been up on the mountain to, to in God's presence. He's heard from God. God has told Moses to prepare the people because God wants to descend on the mountain in the presence of the people, so they can see His glory, so they can sense His power, so they can know who He is. And, and so he tells, he tells Moses, prepare the people. They, they, need to, they need to prepare themselves, consecrate themselves. They need to wash their clothes. They need to prepare themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And, and on the third day of the third month, I will descend upon the mountain and the people can behold my glory. All right? So that, that's, that's the backdrop. Now, start reading with me in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders. And there were lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. In verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet their God. And they took their stand at the, fo- at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him from the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them might perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up on Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it.' Hey, parenthetically, let me just tell you, aren't you grateful there are no more limits? Do you realize that there are no more limits? We have been invited through the precious blood of Jesus Christ to boldly enter the presence of God. Back then, they, they, they couldn't. Verse 24. And the Lord said to him. Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But noot like the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord. Lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Chapter 20 verse 1. Now when all the people saw the thunder. And the flashes of lightning. And the sound of the trumpet. And the mountain smoking. The people were afraid. You know I, our God is a consuming fire. There should be a little bit of fear and apprehension in his presence. Listen, I've told you story after story about my grandfather. You know, he's for me, he was the greatest man I ever lived. And he was short like me. He was a line foreman for, for the railroad. I mean, he just did manual labor his whole life. His forms were, you know, Popeye had nothing on my grandfather. He could pick me up by the belt, by the, you know, by the back of the pants and carry me all day long. His hands never got tired. They were so strong. I just thought he was the greatest thing. And there was nothing better for me. Well, my, my grandfather had this routine he would get home in the evenings and and he basically had to change. They had a utility room in their little house and he would change in the utility room because he was so greasy that my grandmother wouldn't let him in the house. So he'd take his work boots off and he'd lay his hat down and I'd put his work boots on and I'd put his hat on and I'd tromp around the carport like I was a big dog. And then he'd go in the house and and, and take a shower and change and we'd sit down at the table and we'd eat dinner. Then my grandfather would go in and watch Walter Cronkite. Then he would read the Huntsville Times. And then, only then, was I allowed to crawl in his lap. But I would crawl up in his lap. And we would take a nap. Seven o'clock at night. And I waited all day for it. There were times I would get antsy. When's the news going to go off? I'm ready to get in your lap. There were times I would get antsy. Why do you have to read every word of the paper? I'm ready to get into your lap. But even as a hyperactive little kid, I never broached the schedule. Because as much as I loved my granddaddy, I was scared to death of him. And he never once yelled at me. He never once threatened me. In fact, if my mother got mad at me, I could run to him. And I could hide behind him. So there was no fear of any kind of physical retribution. But I just had such a respect for him. I feared him. And when as I got older, into middle school and high school, um, you know, once I got so big that spankings really didn't work anymore, um, my mother found a secret weapon. If I did something wrong and she wanted to punish me, all she had to do was look at me and say, should I tell your grandfather?" Oh no, beat me, please beat me. Do not tell my grandfather. And not that he would do anything, I just didn't want him to think less of me. And I think that's been an incredible understanding for me because that's how God wants us to see Him. We're covered by the grace. God's not sitting in heaven waiting to zap us if we mess up. But God wants us to love him and respect him, admire him so much that there is that respect and, and a certain degree uh, an amount of fear because we do not want to disappoint him by doing anything that makes him mad. So there needs to be a fear. I think it's appropriate. The people were afraid and the people trembled. Now, here's the bad part. Here's what you need to see. They stood far away. they have been invited into God's presence. But instead of coming to the base of the mountain, into the cloud, experiencing the presence of God, they stood far away. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that your fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to God in the thickness of the darkness where God was. One of the saddest statements in all of scripture, the Israelites who God had brought out of of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery, who had claimed as his own children, who who he had prepared a promised land for, who he was leading with a pillar by uh, uh, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's invited them to experience his presence, but because his presence is so big and so magnificent and so awesome that it actually was creating earthquakes and windstorms, the people out of fear retreated and said, Moses, you go into God's presence, but don't ask us to go. We're too afraid. We're too scared. We don't want it. God had invited this ragtag bunch of former slaves into his presence. They wanted them to know him. But instead they fled. So they fled to a place where their sinful flesh felt safe. They missed out on the greatest invitation that a human being could be extended because they wanted their flesh to feel safe. And then they started, you know, they retreated. They, they backed away. And see, here's the problem. When you start backing away from the presence of God to a place where your flesh will feel comfortable, you will keep backing away and backing away and backing away. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. Spiritually. And do you know where religious people end up when they refuse God's invitation of intimacy and they start backing away? They end up creating their own idols to worship. They create these safe little gods they can keep at arm's length. They create these safe little gods they can dictate to and make demands. They create these safe little gods that will do their bidding and adhere to their desires and jump at their commands. They create these safe little gods that ask nothing of them. See, on the third day of the third month, as recorded in chapter 20, the israelites started retreating away from god and you get to chapter 32 and in chapter 32 it reads like this when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what has happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. See, I want you to see this. They didn't give up on religion. They were still incredibly religious. They wanted a god or gods. They didn't give up on religion. They gave up on an experience of intimacy with the one true sovereign transcendent God who created everything we see. And unfortunately, I'm afraid the church in America is in the exact same place. We've got our religion. We just don't have a relationship. We're happy to go through the motions as long as it doesn't cost us anything. So let me ask you this. I'm done. You really need to search your heart. You really need to wrestle with this question. Are you playing religious games? Are you going through religious motions? Or... Or are you seeking hard after the living God? Are you happy going through religious routines and performing religious rituals and checking off religious to do lists? Or do you hunger and thirst for the presence of the living God as David describes in Psalm 63? And I I don't want to make anybody feel guilty if you're not hungering and thirsting the way David describes in Psalm 63. But But I want to provoke you and compel you to realize that when you don't hunger for God, you're missing out on the best thing that he offers. If you're simply going through a religious routine, you're just starving yourself spiritually of the best thing there is out there. There is a God. And he is perfect. And he is beautiful. And he is loving, and he is kind, and he's generous, and he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he offers us himself. He will be our friend. He will walk with us, and he will stick closer than a brother. He will be there as our refuge and as our rock, as our strength and as our fortress, and he will will protect us and take care of us in our greatest time of need. He will never leave us, and he will never forsake us, and we can have all that, or we can have religion. We've got to decide what we want. And, 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 and now listen. If you decide to pursue God, it will cost you. I think it's worth it. But it will cost you. Because you can't have your flesh and have your God at the same time. Isaiah 6. I, I always go back to Isaiah 6. I just think it's the... Isaiah six and Luke fifteen. I just take everything through Isaiah six and Luke fifteen. In Isaiah six, Isaiah is just happy go lucky. He he is a, a he, he is a person of of uh, great importance. He is a cousin to the king. He works at, at the at the. Uh, ca- at the palace. Uh, he's, a, he's a person of renown and, and importance, and, and he's fine with his little religious routine. And one day he's in the temple, and he's there just to go through the religious, perfunctory act of, of, of offering sacrifices. But God decides to interrupt his life, and God peels back eternity and allows uh, his glory to shine through. And, and Isaiah says In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God, and it ruined me. I was never the same. My life was over. I saw God. He was high, and he was lifted up. He was exalted. He had this magnificent train that had just filled the entire temple complex, and above him were these incredible angels, we call them seraphs. And I guarantee if one appeared right now in this room, we'd all pass out in fear. But there were seraphs flying all about. They had six wings. With two, they covered their eyes because even these seraphs, the magnificent supernatural seraphs, cannot look upon God. So with two, they covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they're flying about. And they're calling to one another in rhythmic rhyme. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen God. My life is now over. It is ruined. It will never be the same. So I'm telling you, you pursue a relationship with God, it will cost you. But man, is it so worth it. There's nothing this world has that's better than God. There is nothing, there's nothing this world has that's better than God. You just gotta taste him and see he is good. You just gotta try it and see he is good. He is worth whatever it takes. So here's my final question. Who's ready for God to ruin their lives? Who's ready? You still want to back up and retreat? You still want to go where your flesh can be comfortable? Are you ready to enter the cloud, experience the presence of God, and let Him just ruin your life? It's up to you.